Whisper Halloween special. We are now upon the eve of Halloween and things are really getting interesting as we continue the story of Dracula. We last left off. Van Helsing and gentlemen hot on Dracula's trail, locating all of his earthbox resting places, increasingly peculiar behavior in Mr. Renfield, and Mina is having some weird dreams. So keep a diary. Whistle for your rat-killing terriers, and let's keep going. was now breathing stertorously, 
suffered some terrible injury. Van Helsing returned with extraordinary celerity, bearing with him a surgical case. He had evidently been thinking and had his mind made up, for almost before he looked at the patient, he whispered to me, We must be alone with him when he becomes conscious after the operation. So I said, I think that will do now, Simmons. We have done all that we can at present. You had better go your round, and Dr. Van Helsing will, will operate. Let me know instantly if there be anything unusual anywhere. The man withdrew, and we went into a strict examination of the patient. The wounds of the face were superficial. The real injury was a depressed fracture of the skull, extending right up through the motor area. Professor thought a moment and said, We must reduce the pressure and get back to normal conditions as far as can be. The rapidity of the suffusion shows the terrible nature of his injury. The whole motor area seems affected. The suffusion of the brain will increase quickly, so we must trephine at once or it may be too late. As he was speaking, there was a soft tapping at the door. I went over and opened it, and found in the corridor without Arthur and Quincy in pajamas and slippers. The former spoke. I heard your man call up Dr. Van Helsing and tell him of an accident, so I woke Quincy, or rather called for him as he was not asleep. Things are moving too quickly and too strangely for sound sleep for any of us these times. I've been thinking that tomorrow night we'll not see things as they have been. We'll have to look back and forward a little more than we have done. May we come in? I nodded and held the door open till they had entered, then I closed it again. When Quincy saw the attitude and state of the patient and noted the horrible pool on the floor, he said softly, My God, what has happened to him? Poor, poor devil. I told him briefly, and added that we expected he would recover consciousness after the operation, for a short time at all events. He went at once and sat down on the edge of the bed. With Galtoming beside him, we all watched in patience. We shall wait, said Van Helsing, just long enough to fix the best spot for trephining, so that we may most quickly and perfectly remove the blood clot for it is evident that the hemorrhage is increasing. The minutes during which we waited passed with fearful slowness. I had a horrible sinking in my heart, and from Van Helsing's face I gathered that he felt some fear or apprehension as to what was to come. I dreaded the words that Renfield might speak. I was positively afraid to think, but the conviction of what was coming was on me, as I have read of men who have heard the death watch. The poor man's breathing came in uncertain gasps. Each instant he seemed as though he would open his eyes and speak, but then would follow a prolonged stertorous breath, and he would relapse into a more fixed insensibility. Inured as I was to sick beds and death, this suspense grew and grew upon me. I could almost hear the beating of my own heart, and the blood surging through my temples sounded like blows from a hammer. The 
seen him often before, but he was solid then, not a ghost, and his eyes were fierce like a man's when angry. He was laughing with his red mouth. The sharp white teeth glinted in the moonlight when he turned to look back over the belt of trees to where the dogs were barking. I wouldn't ask him to come in at first, though I knew he wanted to, just as he had wanted all along. Then he began promising me things, not in words, but by doing them. He was interrupted by a word from the professor. How? By making them happen, just as he used to send in the flies when the sun was shining. Great big fat ones with steel and sapphire on their wings, and big moths in the night, with skull and crossbones on their backs. Van Helsing nodded to him as he whispered to me unconsciously. The Acherantia Atropo of the Sphinxes. What you call the death's head moth. The patient went on without stopping. Then he began to whisper, Rats, 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 hundreds, thousands, millions of them, and everyone alive, and dogs to eat them, and cats too, all lives, all red blood, with years of life in it, and not merely buzzing flies. I laughed at him, for I wanted to see what he could do. Then the dogs howled away beyond the dark trees into his house. He, beck he beckoned me to the window. I got up and looked out, and he raised his hands and seemed to call out without using any words. A dark mass spread over the grass, coming on like the shape of a flame of fire. And then he moved the mist to the right and left, and I could see that there were thousands of rats, with their eyes blazing red like his, only smaller. He held up his hand, and they all stopped, and I thought he seemed to be saying, All these lives will I give you, I, and many more and greater, through countless ages, if you will fall down and worship me. And then a red cloud, like the color of blood, seemed to close over my eyes, and before I knew what I was doing, I found myself opening the sash and saying to him, Come in, Lord and Master. The rats were all gone, but he slid into the room through the sash, though it was only open an inch wide, just as the moon herself has often come in through the tiniest crack, and has stood before me in all her size and splendor. His voice was weaker, so I moistened his lips with the brandy again, and he continued but it seemed as though his memory had gone on working in the interval, for his story was further advanced. I was about to call him back to the point, but Van Helsing whispered to me, Let him go on. Do not interrupt him. He cannot go back, and maybe could not proceed all at all if once he lost the thread of his thought. He proceeded. All day I waited to hear from him, but he did not send me anything not even a blowfly, and when the moon got up, I was pretty angry with him. When he slid in through the window, I thought it was shut, and did not even knock. I got mad with him. He sneered at me, and his white face looked out of the mist, 
that somehow Mrs. Harker had come into the room. The two men sitting on the bed stood up and came over standing behind him so that he could not see them, but where they could hear better. They were both silent, but the professor started and quivered. His face, however, grew grimmer and sterner still. Renfield went on without noticing. When Mrs. Harker came in to see me this afternoon, she wasn't the same. It was like tea after the teapot had been watered. Here we all moved, but no one said a word. He went on. I didn't know that she was here till she spoke, and she didn't look the same. I don't care for the pale people. I like them with lots of blood in them, and hers had all seemed to have run out. I didn't think of it at the time. When she went away, I began to think, and it made me mad to know that he had been taking the life out of her. I could feel that the rest quivered as I did, but we remained otherwise still. So when he came tonight, I was ready for him. I saw the mist stealing in, and I grabbed it tight. I had heard that madmen have unusual strength, and as I knew I was a madman, at times anyhow, I resolved to use my power. I and he felt it too, for he had to come out of the mist to struggle with me. I held tight, and I thought I was going to win, for I didn't mean him to take any more of her life, till I saw his eyes. They burned into me, and my strength became like water. He slipped through it, and when I tried to cling to him, he raised me up and flung me down. There was a red cloud before me, and a noise like thunder and the mist seemed to steal away under the door. His voice was becoming fainter, and his breath more stertorous. Van Helsing stood up immediately. We know the worst now, he said. He is here, and we know his purpose. It may not be too late. Let us be armed, the same as we were the other night, but lose no time. There is not an instant to spare. There was no need to put our fear, nay, our conviction into words. We shared them in common. We all hurried and took from our rooms the same things that we had when we entered the Count's house. The professor had his ready, and as we met in the corridor, he pointed to them significantly as he said, They never leave me, and they shall not till this unhappy business is over. Be wise also, my friends. It is no common enemy that we deal with. Alas, alas, that that dear Madame Mina should suffer. He stopped, his voice was breaking, and I do not know if rage or terror predominated in my own heart. Outside the Harker's door we paused. Art and Quincy held back, and the latter said, Should we disturb her? We must, said Van Helsing grimly. Be locked, I shall break it in. May it not frighten her terribly. It is unusual to break into a lady's room. Van Helsing said solemnly, You are always right, but this is life and death. All chambers are alike to the doctor, and even were they not, they are all as one to me tonight. Friend John, when I turn the handle, if the door does not open, do you put your shoulder down and shove? you too, my friends, now. He turned the handle as he spoke, but the door did not yield, 
ourselves against it with a crash it burst open. We almost fell headlong into the room. The professor did actually fall, and I saw across him as he gathered himself up from his hands and knees. What I saw appalled me. I felt my hair rise like bristles on the back of my neck, and my heart seemed to stand still. The moonlight was so bright that through the thick yellow blind, the room was lit enough to see. On the bed beside the window lay Jonathan Harker, his face flushed and breathing heavily as though in a stupor. Kneeling on the near edge of the bed facing outwards was the white, clad figure of his wife. By her side stood a tall, thin man, clad in black. His face was turned from us, but the instant we saw, we all recognized the Count, in every way, even to the scar on his forehead. With his left hand he held both Miss Harker's hands, keeping them away with her arms at full tension. His right hand gripped her by the back of the neck, forcing her face down on his bosom. Her white nightdress was smeared with blood, and a thin stream trickled down the, ma the man's bare breast, which was shown by his torn-open dress. The attitude of the two had a terrible resemblance to a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk to compel it to drink. As we burst into the room, the Count turned his face, and the hellish look that I had heard described seemed to leap into it. His eyes flamed red with devilish passion. The great nostrils of the white aquiline nose opened wide and quivered at the edge, and the white sharp teeth behind the full lips of the blood-dripping mouth jammed together like those of a wild beast. With a wrench, which threw his victim back upon the bed as though hurled from a height, he turned and sprang at us. By this time, the professor had gained his feet and was holding towards him the envelope which contained the sacred wafer. The Count suddenly stopped, just as poor Lucy had done outside the tomb, and cowered back. Further and further back he cowered as we, lifting our crucifixes, advanced. The moonlight suddenly failed as a great black cloud sailed across the sky. And when the gaslight sprang up under Quincy's match, we saw nothing but a faint vapor. This, as we looked, trailed under the door, which, with the recoil from its bursting open, had swung back to its old position. Van Helsing, Art, and I moved forward to Mrs. Harker, who by this time had drawn her breath, and with it had given a scream so wild, so ear-piercing, so despairing that it seems to me now that I, it will ring in my ears till my dying day. For a few seconds she lay in her helpless attitude in disarray. Her face was a ghastly, with a pallor which was accentuated by the blood which smeared her lips and cheeks and chin. From her throat trickled a thin stream of blood. Her eyes were mad with terror. Then she put for her face, her poor crushed hands, which bore on their whiteness the red mark of the Count's terrible grip, and from behind them came a low, desolate wail, which made the terrible scream seem only the quick expression of an endless grief. 
should be that it is. 
his worst enemy, and whom he may have most cause to fear. To this he spoke out resolutely. Nonsense, Mina. It's a shame to me to hear such a word. I would not hear it of you, and I shall not hear it from you. May God judge me by my deserts, and punish me with more bitter suffering than even this hour. If by any act or will of mine anything ever come between us. He put out his arms and folded her to his breast, and for a while she lay there, sobbing. He looked at us over her bowed head, with eyes that blinked damply above his quivering nostrils. His mouth was set as steel. After a while her sobs became less frequent and more faint, and then he said to me, speaking with a studied calmness, which I felt tried his nervous power to the utmost. And now, Dr. Seward, tell me all about it. Too well I know the broad fact. Tell me all that has been. I told him exactly what had happened, and he listened with seeming impassiveness. But his nostrils twitched and his eyes blazed, as I told how the ruthless hands of the Count had held his wife in that terrible and horrid position her mouth to the open wound on his breast. It interested me, even at that moment, to see that, whilst the face of a white, set passion worked convulsively over the bowed head, the hands tenderly and lovingly stroked the ruffled hair. Just as I had finished, Quincy and Godalming knocked at the door. They entered in obedience to her summons. Then Elsing looked at me questioningly. I understood him to mean if we were to take advantage of their coming to divert, if possible, the thoughts of the unhappy husband and wife from each other, and from themselves. So, on nodding, acquiescence to him, he asked them what they had seen or done. To which Lord Galdalming answered, I could not see him anywhere in the passage or in any of our rooms. I looked in the study, but, though he had been there, he had gone. He had, however. He stopped suddenly looking at the poor drooping figure on the bed. Van Helsing said gravely, Go on, friend Arthur, we want here no more concealments. Our hope now is in knowing all, tell freely. So Art went on. He had been there, and though it could only have been for a few seconds, he made rare hay of the place. All the manuscript had been burned, and the blue flames were flickering amongst the white ashes. The cylinders of your phonograph, too, were thrown on the fire, and the wax had helped the flames. Here I interrupted. Thank God there is the other copy in the safe. His face lit for a moment, but fell again as he went on. I ran downstairs then, but could see no sign of him. I looked into Renfield's room, but there was no trace there except... Again he paused. Go on, said Harker hoarsely. So he bowed his head and moistening his lips with his tongue, added, Except that poor fellow is dead. Miss Harker raised her head, looking from one to the other of us as she said solemnly, God's will be done. I could not but feel that Art was keeping back something, but as I took it that it was with a purpose, I said nothing. Van Helsing turned to Morris and asked, And you, friend Quincy, 
much eventually, but at present I can't say. I thought it well to know if possible where the Count would go when he left the house. I did not see him, but I saw a bat rise from Renfield's window and flap westward. I expected to see him in some shape, go back to Carfax, but he evidently sought some other lair. He will not be back tonight, for the sky is reddening in the east and the dawn is close. We must work tomorrow. He said the latter words through his shut teeth. For a space of perhaps a couple of minutes there was silence, and I could fancy that I could hear the sound of our hearts beating. Then Van Helsing said, placing his hand very tenderly on Mrs. Harker's head, And now, Madame Mina, poor dear, dear Madame Mina, tell us exactly what happened. God knows that I do not want that you be pained, but it is need that we all that we know all. For now more than ever has all work to be done quick and sharp and in deadly earnest. The day is close to us that must end all, if it may so be, and now is a chance that we may live and learn. The poor dear lady shivered, and I could see the tension of her nerves as she clasped her husband closer to her and bent her head lower and lower still on his breast. Then she raised her head proudly, and held out one hand to Van Helsing, who took it in his, and, after stooping and kissing it reverently, held it fast. The other hand was locked in that of her husband, who held his other arm thrown round her protectingly. After a pause in which she was evidently ordering her thoughts, she began. I took the sleeping draught which you had so kindly given me, but for a long time it did not act. I seemed to become more wakeful, and myriads of horrible fancies began to crown, to crowd in upon my mind. All of them connected with death and vampires, with blood and pain and trouble. Her husband involuntarily groaned as she turned to him and said lovingly, Do not fret, dear, you must be brave and strong and help me through the horrible task. If you only knew what an effort it is, to me to tell of this fearful thing at all, you would understand how much I need your help. Well, I saw I must try to help the medicine to its work with my will, if it was to be, if it was to do me any good. So I resolutely set myself to sleep. Sure enough, sleep must soon have come to me, for I remember no more. Jonathan coming in had not waked me, for he lay by my side, when next I remember. There was in the room the same thin white mist that I had before noticed, but I forget now, if you know of this, you will find it in my diary, which I shall show you later. I felt the same vague terror which had come to me before, and the same sense of some presence. I turned to wake Jonathan, but found that he slept so soundly that it seemed as if It was he who had taken the sleeping draught, and not I. I tried, but I could not wake him. This caused me a great fear, and I looked around terrified. Then indeed my heart sank within me, beside the bed, as if he had stepped out of the mist, or rather, as if the mist had turned into this figure. For it entirely disappeared, stood a tall, thin man, all in black, I knew him at once from the description of the 
showing between, and the red eyes that I had seemed to see in the sunset on the window of St. Mary's Church at Whitby. I knew, too, the red scar on his forehead where Jonathan had struck him. For an instant, my heart stood still, and I would have screamed out, only that I was paralyzed. In the pause, he spoke in a sort of keen, cutting whisper, pointing as he spoke to Jonathan. Silence. If you make a sound, I shall take him and dash his brains out before your very eyes. I was appalled and was too bewildered to do or say anything. With a mocking smile, he placed one hand upon my shoulder and, holding me tight, bared my throat with the other, saying as he did so, First, a little refreshment to reward my exertions. You may as well be quiet. It is not the first time, or the second, that your veins have appeased my thirst. I was bewildered, and, strangely enough, I did not want to enter him. I suppose it is part of the horrible curse that such is. When his touch is on his victim. And, oh, my God, my God, pity me. He placed his reeking lips upon my throat. Her husband groaned again. She clasped his hand harder and looked at him pityingly as if he were the injured one and went on. I felt my strength fading away and I was in a half swoon. How long this horrible thing lasted I know not, but it seemed that a long time must have passed before he took his foul, awful, sneering mouth away. I saw it drip with the fresh blood. The remembrance seemed for a while to overpower her, and she drooped and would have sunk down but for her husband's sustaining arm. With a great effort she recovered herself and went on. Then he spoke to me mockingly, and so you, like the others, would play your brains against mine. You would help these men to hunt me and frustrate me in my designs. You know now, and they know in part already, and will know in full before long what it is to cross my path. They should have kept their energies for use closer to home. Whilst they played wits against me, against me who commanded nations, and intrigued for them, and fought for them hundreds of years before they were born, I was countermining them. And you, their best beloved one, are now to me, flesh of my flesh, blood of my blood, kin of my kin, my bountiful winepress, for a while, and shall be later on my companion and my helper. You shall be avenged in turn, for not one of them, but shall minister to your needs. But as yet you are to be punished for what you have done. You have aided in thwarting me. Now you shall come to my call. When my brain says come to you, you shall cross land or sea to do my bidding, and to that end this. With that he pulled open his shirt, and with his long sharp nails opened a vein in his breast. When the blood began to spurt out, he took my hands in one of his, holding them tight, and with the other seized my neck and pressed my mouth to the wound so that I must either suffocate or swallow some of the... Oh, my God. My God, what have I done? What have I done to deserve such a fate? 
when we were alone that he did not wish to go into the matter. The question of an inquest had to be considered, and it would never do to put forward the truth, as no one would believe it. As it was, he thought that on the attendant's evidence, he could give a certificate of death by misadventure in falling from bed. In case the coroner should demand it, there would be a formal inquest, necessarily to the same result. When the question began to be discussed as to what should be our next step, the very thing we decided was that Mina should be in full confidence, that nothing of any sort, no matter how painful, should be kept from her. She herself agreed as to its wisdom, and it was pitiful to see her so brave and yet so sorrowful, and in such a depth of despair. There must be no more concealment, she said. Alas, we have had too much already, and besides there is nothing in all the world that can give me more pain than I have already endured, that I suffer now. Whatever may happen, it must be of new hope or of new courage to me. Van Helsing was, looking at her fixedly as she spoke, and said, suddenly but quietly, But dear Madamina, are you not afraid, not for yourself, but for others from yourself, after what had happened? Her face grew set in its lines, but her eyes shone with the devotion of a martyr as she answered, Ah, no, for my mind is made up. To what? he asked gently, whilst we were all very still. For each in our own way, we had a sort of vague idea of what she meant. Her answer came with direct simplicity, as though she were simply stating a fact. Because if I find in myself, and I shall watch keenly for it, a sign of harm to anyone that I love, I shall die. You would not kill yourself, he asked hoarsely. I would, if there were no friend who loved me, who would save me such a pain so desperate an effort. She looked at him meaningly as she spoke. He was sitting down, but now he rose and came close to her and put his hand on her head as he said solemnly, My child, there is such an one, if it were for your good. For myself, I could hold it in my account with God to find such an euthanasia for you, even at this moment, if it were best. Nay, were it safe, but my child... For a moment he seemed choked, and a great sob rose in his throat. He gulped it down and went on. There are here some who would stand between you and death. You must not die. You must not die by any hand, but least of all by your own. Until the other who has fouled your sweet life is true dead, you must not die. For if he is still with the quick undead, your death would make you even as he is. No, you must live. You must struggle and strive to live, though death would seem a boon unspeakable. You must fight death himself, though he come to you in pain or joy, by the day or the night, in safety or in peril. On your living soul I charge you that you do not die, nay, nor think of death, till this great evil be past. The poor dear grew white as death, and shook and shivered, as I have seen a quick sand shake and shiver at the incoming of the tide. We were all silent. We could do nothing. At length she grew more calm, and turning to him said sweetly, but oh, so sorrowfully, as she held out her hand. I promise you, my dear friend, 
has come at once, I cried. We are wasting the precious, precious time. The professor did not move, but simply said, And how are we to get into that house in Piccadilly? Anyway, I cried, we shall break in if need be. And your police, where will they be, and what will they say? I was staggered, but I knew that if he wished to delay, he had a good reason for it. So I said as quietly as I could, Don't wait more than need be, you know, I am sure, what, what torture I am in. Ah, my child, that I do, and indeed there is no wish of me to add to your anguish. But think, what can we do, until all the world be at movement? Then will come our time. I have thought and thought, and it seems to me that the simplest way is the best of all. Now we wish to get into the house, but we have no key, is it not so? I nodded. Now suppose that you were, in truth, the owner of that house, and could not still get in, and think there was to you no conscience of the housebreaker, what would you do? I should get a respectable locksmith, and set him to work to pick the lock for me. And your police, they would interfere, would they not? Oh no, not if they knew the man was properly employed. Then he looked at me keenly as he spoke. All that is in doubt is the conscience of the employer and the belief of your policeman as to whether or no that employer has a good conscience or a bad one. Your police must indeed be zealous men and clever, oh so clever, in reading the heart that they trouble themselves in such matter. No, no, my friend Jonathan, you go take the lock off a hundred empty house in this your London, or of any city in the world, and if you do it as such things are rightly done, and at the time such things are rightly done, no one will interfere. I have read of a gentleman who owned a so fine house in your London, and when he went for months of summer to Switzerland, and lock up his house, some burglar came and broke window at back, and got in. When he went and made open the shutters in front and walk out and in through the door before the very eyes of the police, then he have an auction in that house and advertise it and put up a big notice. And when the day come, he sell off by a great auctioneer all the goods of that other man who owned them. Then he go to a builder and he sell him that house, making an agreement that he pull it down and take all away within a certain time your police and other authority help him all they can. And when that owner came back from his holiday in Switzerland, he find only an empty hole where his house had been. This was all done en règle, and in our work we shall be en règle too. We shall not go so early that the policemen who have then little to think of shall deem it strange we shall go after ten o'clock, when there are many about, and when such things would be done, were we indeed owners of the house. I could not but see how right he was, and the terrible despair of Mina's face became relaxed in thought. There was a hope in such a good counsel. Van Helsing went on. When once within that house, we may find more clues. At any rate, some of us can remain there, whilst the rest find the other places where 
there be more earth boxes at Bermondsey and Mile End? Lord Galdaming stood up. I can be of some use here, he said. I shall wire to my people to have horses and carriages where they will be most convenient. Look here, old fellow, said Morris. It is a capital idea to have all ready in case we want to go horseback horsebacking. But don't you think that one of your snappy carriages with its heraldic adornments in the byway of Walworth or Mile End would attract too much attention for our purposes? It seems to me that we ought to take cabs when we go south or east, and even leave them somewhere near the neighborhood we are going to. Friend Quincy is right, said the professor. His head is what you call in plain with the horizon. It is a difficult thing that we go to do, and we do not want no peoples to watch us, if so it may. Mina took a growing interest in everything, and I was rejoiced to see that the exigency of affairs was helping her to forget for a time the terrible experience of the night. She was very, very pale, almost ghastly, and so thin that her lips were drawn away, showing her teeth in somewhat of a prominence. I did not mention this last, lest it should give her needless pain, but it made my blood run cold in my veins to think of what had occurred with poor Lucy when the Count had sucked her blood. As yet there was no sign of the teeth growing sharper, but the time as yet was short, and there was time for fear. When we came to the discussion of the sequence of our efforts, and of the disposition of our forces, there were new sources of doubt. It was finally agreed that before starting for Piccadilly we should destroy the council air close at hand, in case he should find it out too soon. We should thus be still ahead of him in our work of destruction, and his presence in his purely material shape, and at his weakest, might give us some new clue. As to the disposal of forces, it was suggested by the professor that, after our visit to Carfax, we should all enter the house in Piccadilly, that the two doctors and I should remain there, whilst Lord Galdaming and Quincy found the lairs at Walworth and Mile End and destroyed them. It was possible, if not likely, the professor urged, that the Count might appear in Piccadilly during the day, and that if so, we might be able to cope with him then and there. At any rate, we might be able to follow him in force. To this plan I strenuously objected, and so far as my going was concerned, for I said that I intended to stay and protect Mina. I thought that my mind was made up on the subject, but Mina would not listen to my objection. She said that there might be some law matter in which I could be useful, that amongst the Count's papers might be some clue which I could understand out of my experience in Transylvania that, as it was, all the strength we could muster was required to cope with the Count's extraordinary power. I had to give in, for Mina's resolution was fixed. She said that it was the last hope for her, that we should all work together. As for me, she said, I have no fear. Things have been as bad as they can be, and whatever may happen must have in it some element of hope or comfort. Go, my husband. God can. If he wishes it, guard me as well alone as with anyone present. So I started up crying out. Then God's name let us come at once, for we are losing time. 
this intellectual effort. When it struck him what he had said, he was horrified at his thoughtlessness and tried to comfort her. Oh, Madame Mina, he said, dear, dear Madame Mina, alas, that I of all who so reverence you should have said anything so forgetful. These stupid old lips of mine and this stupid old head do not deserve so, but you will forget it, will you not? He bent low beside her as he spoke. She took his hand, and looking at him through her tears, said hoarsely, No, I shall not forget, for it is well that I remember, and with it I have so much in memory of you that is sweet, that I take it all together. Now you must all be going soon. Breakfast is ready, and we must all eat that we may be strong. Breakfast was a strange meal to us all. We tried to be cheerful and encourage each other, and Mina was the brightest and most cheerful of us. When it was over, Van Helsing stood up and said, Now, my dear friends, we go forth to our terrible enterprise. Are we all armed, as we were on that night when we first we visited our enemy's lair, armed against ghostly as well as carnal attack? We all assured him, Then it is well. Now, Madame Mina, you are in any case quite safe here until the sun set, and before then we shall return, if we shall return. But before we go, let me see you armed against personal attack. I have myself, since you came down, prepared your chamber by placing of the things of which we know, so that he may not enter. Now let me guard yourself. On your forehead I touch this piece of sacred wafer in the name of the Father, Son, and there was a fearful scream which almost froze our hearts to hear. As he placed the wafer on Mina's forehead, it had seared it, had burned into the flesh, as though it had been a piece of white hot metal. My poor darling's brain told her the significance of the fact as quickly as her nerves received the pain of it, and the two so overwhelmed her that her overwrought nature had its voice in that dreadful scream. But the words to her thought came quickly. The echo of the scream had not ceased to ring on the air when there came the reaction, and she sank on her knees on the floor in an agony of abasement, pulling her beautiful hair over her face. As the leper of old his mantle, she wailed out, Unclean, unclean. Even the Almighty shuns my polluted flesh. I must bear this mark of shame upon my forehead until the judgment day. They all paused. I had thrown myself beside her in an agony of helpless grief, and putting my arms around held her tight. For a few minutes our sorrowful hearts beat together, whilst the friends around us turned away. Their eyes that ran to her silently. Then Van Helsing turned and said gravely, so gravely that I could not help feeling that he was in some way inspired and was stating things outside himself. It may be that you may have to bear that mark till God himself see fit, as he most surely shall on the judgment day to redress all wrongs of the earth and of his children that he has placed thereon. And oh, Madame Mina, my dear, my dear, May we who love you be there to see when that red scar, the sign of God's knowledge of what has been, 
shall pass away and leave your forehead as pure as the heart we know. For so surely as we live, that scar shall pass away when God sees right to lift the burden that is hard upon us. Till then we bear our cross, as his Son did in obedience to his will. It may be that we are chosen instruments of his good pleasure, and that we ascend to his bidding as that other, through stripes and shame, through tears and blood, through doubts and fears, and all that makes the difference between God and man. There was hope in his words and comfort, and they made for resignation. Mina and I both felt so, and simultaneously we took one of the old man's hands and bent over and kissed it. Then, without a word, we all knelt down together, and, all holding hands, swore to be true to each other. We men pledged ourselves to raise the veil of sorrow from the head of her womb, the head of her, whom, in each his own way, we loved, and we prayed for help and guidance in the terrible task which lay before us. It was then time to start, so I said farewell to Mina, a parting which neither of us shall forget to our dying day, and we set out. To one thing I have made up my mind. If we find out that Mina must be a vampire in the end, then she shall not go into that unknown and terrible land alone. I suppose it is thus that in old times one vampire meant many, just as their hideous bodies could only rest in sacred earth. So the holiest love was the recruiting sergeant for their ghastly ranks. We entered Carfax without trouble, and found all things the same as on the first occasion. It was hard to believe that amongst so prosaic surroundings of neglect and dust and decay, there was any ground for such fear as already we knew. Had not our minds been made up, and there not been terrible memories to spur us on, we could hardly have proceeded with our task. We found no papers or any sign of use in the house, and in the old chapel the great boxes looked just as we had seen them last. Dr. Van Helsing said to us solemnly as we stood before them, And now, my friends, we have a duty here to do. We must sterilize this earth, so sacred of holy memories that he has brought from a far distant land for such fell use. He has chosen this earth because it has been holy. Thus we defeat him with his own weapon, for we make it more holy still. It was sanctified to such use of man. Now we sanctify it to God. As he spoke, he took from his bag a screwdriver and a wrench, and very soon the top of one of the cases was thrown open. The earth smelled musty and close, but we did not somehow seem to mind, for our attention was concentrated on the professor. Taking from his box a piece of the sacred wafer, he laid it reverently on the earth, and then shutting down the lid, began to screw it home, we aiding him as he worked. One by one we treated in the same way each of the great boxes, and left them as we had found them, to all appearance but in each was a portion of the host. When we closed the door behind us, the professor said solemnly, So much is already done. If it may be that with all the others we can be so successful, then 
The sunset of this evening may shine on Madame Mina's forehead, all white as ivory and with no stain. As we passed across the lawn on our way to the station to catch our train, we could see the front of the asylum. I looked eagerly, and in the window of my own room saw Mina. I waved my hand to her and nodded to tell that our work there had successfully accomplished. She nodded in reply to show that she understood. The last I saw, she was waving her hand in farewell. It was with a heavy heart that we sought the station and just caught the train, which was steaming in as we reached the platform. I have written this in the train. Piccadilly, 12.30 o'clock. Just before we reached Fenchurch Street, Lord Caldalming said to me, Quincy and I will find a locksmith. You had better not come with us in case there should be any difficulty, for under the circumstances it wouldn't seem so bad for us to break into an empty house. But you are a solicitor, and the Incorporated Law Society might tell you that you should have known better. I demurred as to my not sharing any danger, even of odium, but he went on. Besides, it will attract less attention if there are not too many of us. My title will make it all right with the locksmith and with any policeman that may come along. You had better go with Jack and the professor and stay in the green park, somewhere in sight of the house. And when you see the door opened and the smith had gone away, do you all come across? We shall be on the lookout for you and shall let you in. The advice is good, said Van Helsing, so we said no more. Godalming and Morris hurried off in a cab, we following in another. At the corner of Arlington Street, our contingent got out and strolled into Green Park. My heart beat as I saw the house on which so much of our hope was centered, looming up grim and silent in its deserted condition amongst us more lively and spruce-looking neighbors. We sat down on a bench within good view and began to smoke cigars so as to attract as little attention as possible. The minutes seemed to pass with leaden feet as we waited for the coming of the others. At length we saw a four-wheeler drive up. Out of it, in leisurely fashion, got Lord Caldalming and Morris and down from the box descended a thick-set, working man with his rush-woven basket of tools. Morris paid the cabman, who touched his hat and drove away. Together, the two ascended the steps, and Lord Galdamine pointed out what he wanted done. The workman took off his coat leisurely and hung it on one of the spikes of the rail, saying something to a policeman who just then sauntered along. Policeman nodded acquiescence, and the man kneeling down placed his bag beside him. After searching through it, he took out a selection of tools which he proceeded to lay beside him in orderly fashion. Then he stood up, looked into the keyhole, blew into it, and, turning to his employers, made some remark. Lord Galtomic smiled, and the man lifted a good-sized bunch of keys, selecting one of them. 
as if feeling his way with it. After fumbling for a bit, he tried a second, and then a third. All at once, the door opened under a slight push from him, and he and the two others entered the hall. We sat still. My own cigar burned furiously, but Van Helsing's went cold altogether. We waited patiently as we saw the workman come out and bring in his bag. Then he held the door partly open, steadying it with his knees, whilst he fitted a key to the lock. This he finally handed to Lord Galdaming, who took out his purse and gave him something. The man touched his hat, took his bag, and put on his coat and departed. Not a soul took the slightest notice of the whole transaction. When the man had fairly gone, we three crossed the street and knocked at the door. It was immediately opened by Quincy Morris, beside whom stood Lord Caldaming light, lighting a cigar. The place smells so vilely, said the latter as we came in. It did indeed smell vilely, like the old chapel at Carfax, and with our previous experience it was plain to us that the Count had been using the place pretty freely. We moved to explore the house, all keeping together in case of attack, for we knew we had a strong and wily enemy to deal with, and as yet we did not know whether the Count might not be in the house. In the dining room, which lay at the back of the hall, we found eight boxes of earth. Eight boxes, only out of the nine which were sought. Our work was not over would never be until we should have found the missing box. First, we opened the shutters of the window which looked out across a narrow, stone-flagged yard at the blank face of a stable, pointed to look like the front of a miniature house. There were no windows in it, so we were not afraid of being overlooked. We did not lose any time in examining the chests. With the tools which we had brought with us, we opened them one by one, and treated them as we had treated those others in the old chapel. It was evident to us that the Count was not at present in the house, and we proceeded to search for any of his effects. After a cursory glance at the rest of the rooms, from basement to attic, we came to the conclusion that the dining room contained any effects which might belong to the Count, and so we proceeded to minutely examine them. They lay in a sort of orderly disorder on the great dining room table. There were title deeds of the Piccadilly House in a great bundle, deeds of the purchase of the houses at Mile End, in Bermondsey, note paper, envelopes, and pens and ink. All were covered up in thin wrapping paper to keep them from the dust. There were also a clothes brush, a brush and comb a jug and basin, the latter containing dirty water, which was reddened as if with blood. Last of all was a little heap of keys of all sorts and sizes, probably those belonging to the other houses. When we had examined this last find, Lord Caldaming and Quincy Morris, taking accurate notes of the various addresses of the houses in the east and the south, took with them the keys in a great bunch set out to destroy the boxes in these places. The rest of us are, with what patience we can, waiting their return.
professor laid his hand tenderly on his shoulder as he spoke. Ah, my child, I will be plain. Do you not see how, of late, this monster has been creeping into knowledge experimentally? How he has been making use of the zoophagus patient to effect his entry into friend John's home? For your vampire, though in all afterwards, he can come when and how he will, but must at the first make entry only when asked, thereto by an inmate. But these are not his most important experiments. Do we not see how at first all these so great boxes were moved by others? He knew not then, but that must be so. But all the time, that so great child brain of his was growing, and he began to consider whether he might not himself move the box. So he began to help, and then, when he found that this be all right, he tried to move them all alone. And so he progress, and he scatter these graves of him, and none but he know where they are hidden. He may have intend to bury them deep in the ground, so that he only use them in the night, or at such time as he can change his form. They do him equal well, and none may know these are his hiding place. But my child, do not despair. This knowledge come to him just too late. Already all of his lairs but one be sterilized as for him, and before the sunset this shall be so. Then he have no place where he can move and hide. I delayed this morning, that so we might be sure. Is there not more at stake for us than him? Then why we not be even more careful than him? By my clock it is one hour, and already. If all be well, friend Arthur and Quincy are on their way to us. Today is our day, and we must go sure, if slow, and lose no chance. See, there are five of us when those absent ones return. Whilst he was speaking, we were startled by a knock on the hall door. The double postman's knock of the telegraph boy. We all moved out to the hall with one impulse, and Van Helsing, holding up his hand to keep us silence, stepped to the door and opened it. The boy handed in a dispatch. The professor closed the door again and, after looking at the direction, opened it and read it aloud. Look out for D. He has just now, 12.45, come from Carfax hurriedly and hastened towards the south. He seems to be going the round and may want to see you, Mina. There was a pause, broken by Jonathan Harker's voice. Now, God be thanked, we shall soon meet. Van Helsing turned to him quickly and said, God will act in his own way in time. Do not fear and do not rejoice as yet, for what we wish for at the moment may be our undoings. I care for nothing now, he answered hotly, except to wipe out this brute from the face of creation. I would sell my soul to do it. Oh, hush, hush, my child, said Van Helsing. God does not purchase souls in this wise, and the devil, though he may purchase, does not keep faith. But God is merciful and just, and knows your pain and your devotion to that dear Madame Mina. Thank you. How her pain would be doubled, did she but hear your wild words. Do not 
this cause, and today shall see the end. The time is coming for action. Today this vampire is limited to the powers of man, and till sunset he may not change. It will take him time to arrive here. See, it is twenty minutes past one, and there are yet some times before he can hither come. Be he never so quick. What we must hope before is that my Lord Arthur and Quincy arrive first. About half an hour after we had received Mrs. Harker's telegram, there came a quiet, resolute knock at the hall door. It was just an ordinary knock, such as is given hourly by thousands of gentlemen, but it made the professor's heart and mind beat loudly. We looked at each other, and together moved out into the hall. We each held, ready to use our various armaments, the spiritual in the left hand, the mortal in the right. Van Helsing pulled back the latch and, holding the door half open, stood back, having both hands ready for action. The gladness of our hearts must have shone upon our faces when on the step, close to the door, we saw Lord Caldoming and Quincy Morris. They came quickly in and closed the door behind them, the former saying, as they moved along the hall. It is all right. We found both places, six boxes in each, and we destroyed them all. Destroyed, asked the professor. For him. We were silent for a minute, and then Quincy said, There's nothing to do but wait here. If, however, he doesn't turn up by five o'clock, we must start off, for it won't do to leave Mrs. Harker alone after sunset. He will be here before long now, said Van Helsing, who had been consulting his pocketbook. Nota bene. In Madame's telegram, he went south from Carfax. That means he went to cross the river, and he could only do so at slack of tide, which should be something before one o'clock. That he went south has a meaning for us. He is as yet only suspicious and he went from Carfax first to the place where he would suspect interference least. You must have been at Bermondsey only a short time before him. That he is not here already shows that he went to Mile End next. This took him some time, for he would then have to be carried over the river in some way. Believe me, my friends, we shall not have long to wait now. We should have ready some plan of attack, so that we may throw away no chance. Hush, there is no time now. Have all your arms. Be ready. He held up a warning hand as he spoke, for we all could hear a key softly inserted in the lock of the hall door. I could not but admire, even at such a moment, the way in which a dominant spirit asserted itself. In all our hunting parties and adventures in different parts of the world, Quincy Morris had always been the one to arrange the plan of action. Arthur and I had been accustomed to obey him implicitly. Now the old habit seemed to be renewed instinctively. With a swift glance round the room, he at once laid out our plan of attack, and without speaking a word, with a gesture, placed us each in position. Van Helsing, Harker, and I were just behind the door, so that when it was open the professor could guard it, whilst we two stepped between the in-corner and the door. Caldalming behind, and Quincy in front, 
those that you all love are mine already, and through them you and others shall yet be mine, my creatures, to do my bidding, and to be my jackals when I want to feed. Bah! With a contemptuous sneer, he passed quickly through the door, and we heard the rusty bolt creak as he fastened it behind him. A door beyond opened and shut. The first of us to speak was the professor, as, realizing the difficulty of following him through the stable, we moved towards the hall. We have learned something, much. Notwithstanding his brave words, he fears us, he fear time, he fear want. For if not, why he hurry so? His very tone betray him, or my ears deceive. Why take that money? You follow quick. You are hunters of wild beasts and understand it so. For me, I make sure that nothing here may be of use to him, if so that he return. As he spoke, he put the money remaining into his pocket, took the title deeds in the bundle as Harker had left them, and swept the remaining things into the open fireplace where he set fire to them with a match. Kaltaming and Morris had rushed out into the yard, and Harker had lowered himself from the window to follow the Count. He had, however, bolted the stable door, and by the time they had forced it open there was no sign of him. Van Helsing and I tried to make inquiry at the back of the house, but the muse was deserted, and no one had seen him depart. It was now late in the afternoon, and sunset was not far off. We had to recognize that our game was up. With heavy hearts, we agreed with the professor when he said, Let us go back to Madame Mina. Poor, poor dear Madame Mina. All we can do just now is done, and we can there at least protect her. But we need not despair. There is but one more earth box, and we must try to find it. When that is done, all may yet be well. I could see that he spoke as bravely as he could to comfort Harker. The poor fellow was quite broken down. Now and again he gave a low groan, which he could not suppress. He was thinking of his wife. With sad hearts, we came back to my house, where we found Mrs. Harker waiting us, with an appearance of cheerfulness, which did honor to her bravery and unselfishness. When she saw our faces, her own became as pale as death. For a second or two, her eyes were closed, as if she were in a secret prayer, and then she said cheerfully, I can never thank you all enough. Oh, my poor darling. As she spoke, she took her husband's gray hand in hers and kissed it. Lay your poor head here and rest it. All will yet be well, dear. God will protect us, if he so will it in his good intent. The poor fellow only groaned. There was no place for words in his sublime misery. We had a sort of perfunctory supper together, and I think it cheered us all up somewhat. It was, perhaps, the mere animal heat of food to hungry people, for none of us had eaten anything since breakfast, or the sense of companionship may have helped us. But anyhow, we were all less miserable, and saw the morrow as not altogether without hope. True to our promise, we told Mrs. Harker everything which had passed, and although she grew snowy white at times when danger had seemed to threaten her husband, and red at others when his devotion to her was manifested, 
She listened bravely and with calmness. When we came to the part where Harker had rushed at the Count so recklessly, she clung to her husband's arm and held it tight, as though her clinging could protect him from any harm that might come. She said nothing, however, till the narration was all done, and matters had been brought right up to the present time. Then, without letting go her husband's hand, she stood up amongst us and spoke. Oh, that I could give any idea of that scene, of that sweet, sweet, good, good woman in all the radiant beauty of her youth and animation, with the red scar on her forehead of which she was conscious, and which we saw with grinding of our teeth, remembering whence and how it came, her loving kindness against our grim hate, her tender faith against all our fears and doubting, and we, knowing that so far as symbols went, she, with all her goodness and purity and faith, was outcast from God. Jonathan, she said, and the word sounded like music on her lips. It was so full of love and tenderness. Jonathan, dear, and you all, my true, true friends, I want you to bear something in mind through all this dreadful time. I know that you must fight, that you must destroy even as you destroyed the false Lucy, so that the true Lucy might live hereafter. But it is not a work of hate. That poor soul, who has wrought all this misery, is the saddest case of all. Just think what will be his joy when he too is destroyed, in his worser part, that his better part may have spiritual immortality. It must be pitiful to him too, though it may not hold your hands from his destruction. As she spoke, I could see her husband's face darken and draw together, as though the passion in him were shriveling, his being to its core. Instinctively, the clasp on his wife's hand grew closer, till his knuckles looked white. She did not flinch from the pain which I knew she must have suffered, but looked at him with eyes that were more appealing than ever. As she stopped speaking, he leaped to his feet, almost tearing his hand from hers as he spoke. May God give him into my hand just for long enough to destroy that earthly life of him which we are aiming at. If beyond it I could send his soul forever and ever to burning hell, I would do it. Oh, hush, oh, hush, in the name of the good God. Don't say such things, Jonathan, my husband, or you will crush me with fear and horror. Just think, my dear, I have been thinking all this long, long day of it that, perhaps, some day I too may need such pity, and that some other, like you, and with equal cause for anger, may deny it to me. Oh, my husband, my husband indeed, I would have spared you such a thought had there been another way, but I pray that God may not have treasured your wild words, except as the heartbroken wail of a very loving and sorely stricken man. Oh, God, let these poor white hairs go in evidence of what he has suffered, who all his life has done no wrong, and on whom many sorrows have come. We men were all in tears now. There was no resisting them, and we wept openly. She wept, too, to see that her sweeter counsels had prevailed. Her husband flung himself on his knees beside her, and putting his arms around her, hid his face in the folds of her dress. Van Helsing beckoned to us, and we stole out of the room, leaving the two loving hearts alone with their God. Before they retired, the professor
professor fixed up the room against any coming of the vampire and assured Mrs. Harker that she might rest in peace. She tried to school herself to the belief, and manifestly for her husband's sake, tried to seem content. It was a brave struggle, and was, I think and believe, not without its reward. Then Elsing had placed at hand a bell, which either of them was to sound in case of any emergency. When they had retired, Quincy, Galdalming, and I arranged what we should sit up, dividing the night between us, and watch over the safety of the poor stricken lady. The first watch falls to Quincy, so the rest of us shall be off to bed as soon as we can. Galdalming has already turned in, for his is the second watch. Now that my work is done, I too shall go to bed. Jonathan Harker's Journal 3rd to 4th of October, close to midnight. I thought yesterday would never end. There was over me a yearning for sleep, and some sort of blind belief that to wake would be to find things changed, and that any change must now be for the better. Before we parted, we discussed what our next step was to be, but we could arrive at no result. All we knew was that one earth box remained, that the Count alone knew where it was. If he chooses to lie hidden, he may baffle us for years, and in the meantime, the thought is too horrible I dare not think of it even now. This I know, that if ever there was a woman who was all perfection, that one is my poor wronged darling. I love her a thousand times more for her sweet pity of last night, a pity that made my own hate of the monster seem despicable. Surely God will not permit the world to be the poorer by the loss of such a creature. This is hope to me. We are all drifting reefwards now, and faith is our only anchor. Thank God, Mina is sleeping, and sleeping without dreams. I fear what her dreams might be like, with such terrible memories to ground them in. She has not been so calm within my seeing since the sunset. Then, for a while, there came over her face a repose which was like spring after the blasts of March. I thought at the time that it was the softness of the red sunset on her face, but somehow, now, I think it has a deeper meaning. I am not sleepy myself, though I am weary, weary to death. However, I must try to sleep, for there is tomorrow to think of. There's no rest for me until... Later. I must have fallen asleep, for I was awakened by Mina, who was sitting up in bed with a startled look on her face. I could see easily, for we did not leave the room in darkness. She had placed a warning hand over my mouth, and now she whispered in my ear, Hush, there's something in the corridor. I got up softly, and, crossing the room, gently opened the door. Just outside, stretched on a mattress, lay Mr. Morris, wide awake. He raised a warning hand for silence as he whispered to me, Hush, go back to bed. It is all right. One of us will be here all night. We don't mean to take any chances. His look and gesture forbade discussion, so I came back and told Mina. She sighed and positively a shadow of a smile stole over her poor pale face as she put her arms around me and said softly, Oh, thank God for good, brave men. 
a sigh, she sank back again to sleep. I write this now as I am not sleepy, though I must try again. Fourth of October, morning. Once again during the night, I was wakened by Mina. This time we had all had a good sleep, for the gray of the coming dawn was making the windows into sharp oblongs and the gas flame was like a speck rather than a disk of light. She said to me hurriedly, Go, call the professor. I want to see him at once. Why? I asked. I have an idea. I suppose it must have come in the night and matured without my knowing it. He must hypnotize me before the dawn, and then I shall be able to speak. Go quick, dearest. The time is getting close. I went to the door. Dr. Seward was resting on the mattress and, seeing me, he sprang to his feet. Is anything wrong? he asked in alarm. No, I replied, but Mina wants to see Dr. Van Helsing at once. I will go, he said, and hurried into the professor's room. In two or three minutes later, Van Helsing was in the room in his dressing gown, and Mr. Morris and Lord Godalming were with Dr. Seward at the door asking questions. When the professor saw Mina, a smile positive smile ousted the anxiety of his face. He rubbed his hands as he said, Oh, my dear Madame Mina, this is indeed a change. See, friend Jonathan, we have got our dear Madame Mina, as of old, back to us today. Then, turning to her, he said cheerfully, And what am I to do for you? For at this hour you do not want me for nothings. I want you to hypnotize me, she said. Do it before the dawn for I feel that then I can speak, and speak freely. Be quick, for the time is short. Without a word, he motioned her to sit up in bed. Looking fixedly at her, he commenced to make passes in front of her, from over the top of her head downward, with each hand in turn. Mina gazed at him fixedly for a few minutes, during which my own heart beat like a trip hammer, for I felt that some crisis was at hand. Gradually her eyes closed, and she sat, stock still. Only by the gentle heaving of her bosom could one know that she was alive. The professor made a few more passes and then stopped, and I could see that his forehead was covered with great beads of perspiration. Mina opened her eyes, but she did not seem the same woman. There was a faraway look in her eyes, and her voice had a sad dreaminess which was new to me. Raising his hand to impose silence, the professor motioned me to bring the others in. They came on tiptoe, closing the door behind them, and stood at the foot of the bed, looking on. Mina appeared not to see them. The stillness was broken by Van Helsing's voice, speaking in a low-level tone, which would not break the current of her thoughts. Where are you? The answer came in a neutral way. I do not know. Sleep has no place. It can call its own. For several minutes there was silence. Mina sat rigid, and the professor stood staring at her fixedly. The rest of us hardly dared to breathe. The room was growing lighter, without taking his eyes from Mina's face. Dr. Van Helsing motioned me to pull up the blind. I did so, and the day seemed just upon us. A red streak shot up, and a rosy light seemed to diffuse itself through the room. On the instant 
professor spoke again. Where are you now? The answer came dreamily, but with intention. It were, though she were interpreting something. I have heard her use the same tone when reading her shorthand notes. I do not know. It is all strange to me. What do you see? I can see nothing. It is all dark. What do you hear? I could detect the strain in the professor's patient voice. The lapping of water. It is gurgling by, and little waves leap. I can hear them on the outside. Then you are on a ship. We all looked at each other, trying to glean something, each from the other. We were afraid to think. The answer came quick. Oh, yes. What else do you hear? The sound of men stamping overhead as they run about. There is the creaking of a chain, and the loud tinkle as the check of the captain fall into the ratchet. What are you doing? I am still. Oh, so still. It is like death. The voice faded away into a deep breath, as of one sleeping, and the open eyes closed again. By this time the sun had risen and we were all in the full light of day. Dr. Van Helsing placed his hands on Mina's shoulders and laid her head down softly on her pillow. She lay like a sleeping child for a few moments, and then, with a long sigh, awoke and stared in wonder to see us all around her. Have I been talking in my sleep? Was all she said. She seemed, however, to know the situation without telling though she was eager to know what she had told. The professor repeated the conversation, and she said, Then there is not a moment to lose. It may not yet be too late. Mr. Morris and Lord Galdaming started for the door, but the professor's calm voice called them back. Stay, my friends. That ship, wherever it was, was weighing anchor whilst she spoke. There are many ships weighing anchor at the moment, in your so great port of London. Which of them is it that you seek? God be thanked that we have once again a clue, though whither it may lead us we know not. We have been blind somewhat, blind after the manner of men, since when we can look back, we see what we might have seen looking forward, if we had been able to see what we might have seen. Alas, but that sentence is a bottle, is it not? We can know now what was in the Count's mind when he seized that money, though Jonathan's so fierce knife put him in the danger that even he dread. He meant escape. Hear me, escape. He saw that, with but one earth box left, and a pack of men following like dogs after a fox, this London was no place for him. He have take his last earth box on board a ship, and he leave the land. We think to escape, but no, we follow him, Dalio, as friend Arthur would say when he put on his red frock. Our old fox is wily, oh, so wily, and we must follow with while. I too am wily, and I think his mind in a little while, in meantime, we may rest and in peace, for there are waters between us which he do not want to pass, and which he could not if he would unless the ship were to touch the land, and then only at full or slack tide. See, a 
the sun is just rose, and all day to sunset is to us. Let us take bath and dress, and have breakfast which we all need, and which we can eat comfortable, since he be not in the same land with us. Mina looked at him appealingly as she said, But why need we seek him further, when he has gone away from us? He took her hand and patted it as he replied, Ask me nothings as yet. When we have breakfast, then I answer all questions. He would say no more, and we separated to dress. After breakfast, Mina repeated her question. He looked at her gravely for a minute, and then said sorrowfully, Because, my dear, dear Madam Mina, now more than ever must we find him, even if we have to follow him to the jaws of hell. She grew paler as she asked faintly, Why? Because, he answered solemnly, he can live for centuries, and you are but mortal woman. Time is now to be dreaded, since once he put that mark upon your throat. I was just in time to catch her as she fell forward in a faint.
where his box had been stowed. Then the captain replied that he wished that he and his box, old and with much bloom and blood, were in hell. But the thin man did not be offended, and went down with the mate and saw where it was placed, and came up and stood a while on deck in fog. He must have come off by himself, for none notice him. Indeed, they thought not of him, for soon the fog began to melt away, and all was clear again. My friends of the thirst and the language, that was of bloom and bloody laughed, as they told how the captain's swears exceeded even his usual polyglot, and was more than ever full of picturesque. When on questioning other mariners who were on movement up and down on the river that hour, he found that few of them had seen any fog at all, except where it lay round the wharf. However, the ship went out on the ebb tide, and was doubtless by morning far down the river mouth. She was by then, when they told us, well out to sea. And so, my dear Madam Mina, it is that we have to rest for a time, for our enemy is on the sea, with the fog at his command on his way to the Danube mouth. To sail a ship takes time, go she never so quick, and when we start we go on land more quick, and we meet him there. Our best hope is to come on him, when in the box between sunrise and sunset, for then he can make no struggle, and we may deal with him as we should. There are days for us in which we can make ready our plan. We know all about where he go, for we have seen the owner of the ship, who have shown us invoices, and all papers that can be. The box we seek is to be landed in Varna, and to be given to an agent, one Rystics, who will be there, present his credentials, and so our merchant friend will have done his part. When he asks if there be any wrong, for that so, he can telegraph and have inquiry made at Varna. We say no for what is to be done, is not for police, or of the customs. It must be done by us alone, and in our own way. When Dr. Van Helsing had done speaking, I asked him if it were certain the Count had remained on board the ship. He replied, We have the best proof of that, your own evidence, when in the hypnotic trance this morning, I asked him again if it were really necessary that they should pursue the Count, for, oh, I dread Jonathan leaving me, and I know that he would surely go if the others went. He answered in growing passion, at first quietly. As he went on, however, he grew more angry and more forceful, till in the end we could not but see wherein, at last, some of that personal dominance which made him so long a master amongst men. Yes, it is necessary. Necessary, necessary. For your sake in the first, and then for the sake of humanity, this monster has done much harm already, in the narrow scope where he find himself, and in the short time, when as yet, he was only a body groping in so small measure in darkness, and not knowing. All this have I told these others. You, my dear Madame Mina, will learn it in the phonograph of my friend John, or in that of your husband. I have told them how the measure of leaving his own barren land, barren of peoples, and coming to a new land where life of man teems till they are like the multitude of standing corn.
centuries. Were another of the undead like him to try to do what he has done, perhaps not all the centuries of the world will have been, or that will be, could aid him. With this one, all the forces of nature that are occult and deep and strong must have worked together in some wondrous way. The very place where he have been alive, undead for all these centuries, is full of strangeness of the geologic and chemical world. There are deep caverns and fissures that reach none know whither. There have been volcanoes, some of whose openings still send out waters of strange properties, and gases that kill or make to vivify. Doubtless, there is something magnetic or electric in some of these combinations of occult forces, which work for physical life in strange way, and in himself were from the first some great qualities. In a hard and warlike time, he would celebrate that he have more iron nerve, more subtle brain, more braver art than any man. In him some vital principle have in strange way found their utmost, and as his body keeps strong and grow and thrive, so his brain grow too, all this without the diabolic aid which is surely to him, for it have to yield to the powers that come from and are symbolic of good. And now this is what he is to us. He hath infect you. Oh, forgive me, my dear, that I must say such, but it is for good of you that I speak. He infect you in such wise that even if he do no more to live in your own old sweet way, and so in time death, which is of man's common lot and with God's sanction, shall make you like to him. This must not be. We have sworn together that it must not. Thus are we ministers of God's own wish, that the world, and men for whom his son die, will not be given over to monsters, whose very existence would defame him. He have allowed us to redeem one soul already, and we go out as the old knights of the cross to redeem more. Like them, we shall travel towards the sunrise, and like them, if we fall, we fall in good cause. He paused, and I said, But will not the Count take his rebuff wisely? Since he has been driven from England, will he not avoid it, as a tiger does the village from which he had been hunted? Ah, he said, your simile of the tiger good for me, and I shall adopt him. Your man-eater, as they of India call the tiger, who has once tasted blood of the human, care no more for other prey, but prowls unceasing till he get him. This what we hunt from our village is a tiger too, a man-eater, and he never cease to prowl. Nay, in himself he is not one to retire and stay afar. In his life, his living life, he go over to the Turkey frontier and attack his enemy on his own ground. He be beaten back, but did he stay? No. He come again, and again, and again. Look at his persistence and endurance. With the child brain that was to him, he have long since conceived the idea of coming to a great city. What does he do? He find out the place of all the world most of promise for him. Then he deliberately set himself down to prepare for the task. He find in patience just how is his strength, and what are his powers. 
cause to his brain, for it all proved to him how right he was at the first in his surmises. He have done this alone, all alone, from a ruined tomb in a, fo in a forgotten land. What more may he not do when the greater world of thought is open to him? He that can smile at death, as we know him, who can flourish in the midst of diseases that kill off whole peoples. Oh, if such a one was to come from God and not the devil, what a force for good might he not be in this old world of ours? But we are pledged to set the world free. Our toil must be in silence and our efforts all in secret. For in this enlightened age, when men believe not even what they see, the doubting of wise men would be his greatest strength. It would be at once his sheath and his armor and his weapons to destroy us, his enemies who are willing to peril even our own souls for the safety of one we love, for the good of mankind and for the honor and glory of God. After a general discussion, it was determined that for tonight nothing be de definitely settled, that we should all sleep on the facts and try to think out the proper conclusions. Tomorrow at breakfast we are to meet again, and after making our conclusions known to one another, we shall decide on some definite cause of action. I feel a wonderful peace and rest tonight. It is as if some haunting presence were removed from me. Perhaps. My surmise was not finished, could not be, for I caught sight in the mirror of the red mark upon my forehead, and I knew that I was still unclean. Dr. Seward's Diary, 5th of October We all rose early, and I think that sleep did much for each and all of us. When we met at early breakfast there was a more general cheerfulness than any of us had ever expected to experience again. It is really wonderful how much resilience there is in human nature. Let any obstructing cause, no matter what, be removed in any way, even by death, and we fly back to first principles of hope and enjoyment. More than once, as we sat around the table, my eyes opened in wonder whether the whole of the past days had not been a dream. It was only when I caught sight of the, of the red blotch on Mrs. Harker's forehead that I was brought back to reality. Even now, when I am gravely revolving the matter, it is almost impossible to realize that the cause of all our trouble is still existent. Even Mrs. Harker seems to lose sight of her trouble for the whole spells. It is only now and again, when something recalls it to her mind, that she thinks of her terrible scar. We are to meet here in my study in half an hour and decide on our course of action. I see only one immediate difficulty. I know it by instinct rather than reason. We shall all have to speak frankly, and yet I fear that in some mysterious way poor Mrs. Harker's tongue is tied. I know that she forms conclusions of her own, and from all that has been, I guess, I can guess how brilliant and how true they must be, but she will not or cannot give them utterance. I have mentioned this to Van Helsing, and he and I are to talk it over when we are alone. I 
suppose it is some of that horrid poison which has got into her veins beginning to work. The Count had his own purposes when he gave her what Van Helsing called the vampire's baptism of blood. While there may be a poison that distills itself out of good things in an age when the existence of domains is a mystery we should not wonder at anything. One thing I know, that if my instinct be true regarding poor Mrs. Harker's silence, then there is a terrible difficulty, an unknown danger, in the work before us. The same power that compels her silence may compel her speech. I dare not think further, for so I should in my thoughts dishonor a noble woman. Van Helsing is coming to my study a little before the others. I shall try to open the subject with him. Later, when the professor came in, we talked over the state of things. I could see that he had something on his mind which he wanted to say, but felt some hesitancy about broaching the subject. After beating about the bush a little, he said suddenly, Friend John, there is something that you and I must talk of alone, just at the first at any rate. Later we may have to take the others into our confidence. Then he stopped, so I waited. He went on. Madame Mina, our poor dear Madame Mina, is changing. A cold shiver ran through me to find my worst fears thus endorsed. Van Helsing continued. With the sad experience of Miss Lucy, we must this time be warned before things go too far. Our task is now, in reality, more difficult than ever, and this new trouble makes every hour of the direst importance. I can see the characteristics of the vampire coming in her face. It is now but very, very slight, but it is to be seen if we have eyes to notice without to prejudge. Her teeth are some sharper, and at times her eyes are more hard. But these are not all. There is to her the silence now often, as so it was with Miss Lucy. She did not speak, even when she wrote that which she wished to be known later. Now, my fear is this, if it be that she can, by her hypnotic trance, tell what the Count see and hear. It is not more true that he who have hypnotized her first, and who have drink of her very blood, and make her drink of his, should, if he will, compel her mind to disclose to him that which she know. I nodded acquiescence. He went on. Then, what we must do is to prevent this. We must keep her ignorant of our intent, and so she cannot tell what she know not. This is a painful task. Oh, so painful, that it heartbreak me to think of, but it must be. When today we meet, I must tell her that for reason which we will not to speak, she must not more be of our counsel, but be simply guarded by us. He wiped his forehead, which had broken out in profuse perspiration at the thought of the pain which he might have to inflict upon the poor soul already so tortured. I knew that it would be some, of co some sort of comfort to him if I told him that I also had come to the same conclusion. 
message by her husband to say that she would not join us at the present, as she thought it better that we should be free to discuss our movements without her presence to embarrass us. The professor and I looked at each other for an instant, and somehow we both seemed relieved. For my own part, I thought that if Mrs. Harker realized the danger herself, it was much pain as well as much danger averted. Under the circumstances we agreed, by a questioning look and answer, with a finger on lip, to preserve silence of our suspicions, until we should have been able to confer alone again. We went at once into our plan of campaign. Van Helsing roughly put the facts before us first. The Tsarina Catherine left the Thames yesterday morning. It will take her at the quickest speed she has ever made, at least three weeks to reach Varna. But we can travel overland to the same place in three days. Now, if we allow for two days less for the ship's voyage, owing to such weather, influences as we know that the Count can bring to bear, and if we allow a whole day and night for any delays which may occur to us, then we have a margin of nearly two weeks. Thus, in order to be quite safe, we must leave here on 17th at latest. Then we shall at any rate be in Varna a day before the ship arrives, and able to make such preparations as may be necessary. Of course we shall all go armed, armed against evil things, spiritual as well as physical. Here Quincy Morris added, I understand that the Count comes from a wolf country, and it may be that he shall get there before us. I propose that we add Winchesters to our armament. I have a kind of belief in a Winchester when there is any trouble of that sort around. Do you remember, Art, we had the pack after us at Tobolsk? What wouldn't we have given, then, for a repeater apiece? Good, said Van Helsing. Winchesters it shall be. Quincy's head is level at all times, but most so when there is to hunt, though my metaphor be more dishonor to science than wolves be of danger to man. In the meantime, we can do nothing here, and as I think that Varna is not familiar to any of us, why not go there more soon? It is as long to wait here as there. Tonight and tomorrow we can get ready, and then, if all be well, we four can set out on a journey. We four, said Harker interrogatively, looking from one to another of us. Of course, answered the professor quickly. You must remain to take care of your so sweet wife. Harker was silent for a while and then said in a hollow voice, Let us talk of that part of it in the morning. I want to consult with Mina. I thought that now was the time for Van Helsing to warn him not to disclose our plans to her. But he took no notice. I looked at him significantly and coughed. For answer, he put his finger on his lip and turned away. Jonathan Harker's Journal, 5th of October, afternoon. For some time after our meeting this morning, I could not think. The new phases of things leave my mind in a state of wonder, which allows not room for active thought. Mina's determination not to take any part in the discussion set me thinking, and as I could not argue the matter with her, I could only guess. I am as far as ever from a solution now. The way the others received it, too, puzzled me. The last time we talked of the subject, we agreed that there was to be no more concealment 
anything amongst us. Mina is sleeping now, calmly and sweetly like a little child. Her lips are curved, and her face beams with happiness. Thank God there are such moments still for her. Later, how strange it all is, I sat watching Mina's happy sleep, and came as near to being happy myself as I suppose I shall ever be. As the evening drew on, and the earth took its shadows from the sun sinking lower, the silence of the room grew more and more solemn to me. All at once, Mina opened her eyes and, looking at me tenderly, said, Jonathan, I want you to promise me something on your word of honor, a promise made to me, but made holily on God's hearing, and not to be broken, though I should go down on my knees and implore you with bitter tears. Quick, you must make it to me at once. Mina, I said, a promise like that I cannot make at once. I may have no right to make it. But dear one, she said, with such spiritual intensity that her eyes were like pole stars, it is I who wish it, and it is not for myself. You can ask Dr. Van Helsing if I am not right. If he disagrees, you may do as you will. Nay more, if you all agree later, you are absolved from the promise. I promise, I said, and for a moment she looked supremely happy, though to me all happiness for her was denied by the red scar on her forehead. She said, Promise me that you will not tell me of anything of the plans formed for the campaign against the Count, not by word or inference or implication, not at any time, whilst this remains to me. And she solemnly pointed to the scar. I saw that she was in earnest, and I said solemnly, I promise, and as I said it, I felt that from that instant a door had been shut between us. Later, midnight, Mina has been bright and cheerful all evening, so much so that all the rest seemed to take courage, as if infected somewhat with her gaiety. As a result, even I myself felt as if the ball of gloom which weighs us down were somewhat lifted. We all retired early. Mina is now sleeping like a little child. It is a wonderful thing that her faculty of sleep remains to her in the midst of her terrible trouble. Thank God for it, for then, at least, she can forget her care. Perhaps her example may affect me, as her gaiety did tonight. I shall try it, oh, for a dreamless sleep. 6th of October, morning. Another surprise. Mina woke me early, about the same time as yesterday, and asked me to bring Dr. Van Helsing. I thought that it was another occasion for hypnotism, and without question went for the professor. He had evidently expected some such call, for I found him dressed in my room. His door was ajar, so that he could hear the opening of the door of our room. He came at once, as he passed into the room. He asked Mina if the others might come too. No, she said quite simply. It will not be necessary. You can tell them just as well. I must go with you on your journey. Dr. Van Helsing was as startled as I was. After a moment's pause, he asked, But why? You must take me with you. I am safer with you, and you shall be safer too. But why, dear Madam Mina? You know that your safety is our solemnest duty. We go into danger to which
which you are, or may be more liable than any of us, from, from circumstances, things that have been. He paused, embarrassed. As she replied, she raised her finger and pointed to her forehead. I know, that is why I must go. I can tell you now, whilst the sun is coming up, I may not be able again. I know that when the Count wills me, I must go. I know that if he tells me to come in secret, I must come by wile, by device, to hoodwink even Jonathan. God saw the look that she turned on me as she spoke, and if there be indeed a recording angel, that look is noted to her everlasting honor. I could only clasp her hand. I could not speak. My emotion was too great for even the relief of tears. She went on. You men are brave and strong. You are strong in your numbers, for you can defy that which would break down the human endurance of one who had to guard alone. Besides, I may be of service, since you can hypnotize me and so learn that which even I myself do not know. Dr. Van Helsing said very gravely, Madam Mina, you are, as always, most wise. You shall with us come, and together we shall do that which we go forth to achieve. When he had spoken, Mina's long spell of silence made me look at her. She had fallen back on her pillow asleep. She did not even wake when I had pulled up the blind and let in the sunlight which flooded the room. Van Helsing motioned me to come with him quietly. We went to his room, and within a minute... Lord Galdaming, Dr. Seward, and Mr. Morris were with us also. He told them what Mina had said and went on. In the morning we shall leave for Varna. We have now to deal with a new factor, Madam Mina. Oh, but her soul is true. It is to her in agony to tell us so much as she has done. But it is most right, and we are warned in time. There must be no chance lost, and in Varna... We must be ready to act the instant when that ship arrives. What shall we do exactly? asked Mr. Morris laconically. The professor paused before replying. We shall at the first board that ship. Then, when we have identified the box, we shall place a branch of the wild rose on it. This we shall fasten, for when it is there none can emerge. So at least says the superstition and to superstition must we trust at the first. It was man's faith in the early, and it hath its root in faith still. Then, when we get the opportunity that we seek, when none are near to see, we shall open the box, and, and all will be well. I shall not wait for any opportunity, said Morris. When I see the box, I shall open it and destroy the monster. Though there were a thousand men looking on, and if I am to be wiped out for it the next moment. I grasped his hand instinctively and found it as firm as a piece of steel. I think he understood my look. I hope he did. Good boy, said Dr. Van Helsing. Brave boy. Quincy is all a man. God bless him for it. My child, believe me, none of us shall lag behind or pause from any fear. I do but say what we may do, what we must do. But indeed... Indeed, we cannot say what we shall do. There are so many things which may happen, and their ways and their ends are so various, that until the moment we may not say, we shall all be armed in all ways, and when the time for the end has come, our efforts shall not be lack. Now let us
listening to the book whisperer listen in tomorrow night for the final reading of dracula chapters 25 to 27 good night <laughs>